The Women of Ill Repute with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Hey, Maureen, we're going to talk about fashion, I think, today. So, like, do you have a, do you have a style? Do I, I don't know if I, I think it's changed over the years. I kind of was like punky in the 80s and although I had the same hair. Um, I think now, tailored, casual uh, jeans and sneakers, nice shirts for Zoom, sometimes with no <laughs> pants, but that's our little secret. Yeah, don't stand up. <laughs> um, in terms of designers, I like Max Mara. And if I could afford it, Chanel and Celine, I love, but I can't afford it. Um, Judith and Charles, uh, Smythe. I could go. What, what about you? What about you? Well, I'm sort of having flashbacks to when we first started this whole podcast thing and we were doing photos and the, uh, she wanted to know, okay, what's, what's the tone? What's, what's your fashion style? What's your, and so we, we were thinking, we were cowgirls. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of cowgirls, but she wanted more. She wanted like our, our, so anyway, we sort of said, well, we're sort of glamorous and we're sort of goofy with you being the glamorous person and me being the goofy person. But I mean, I liked being glamorous. Like I could do glamorous on oh, TV occasionally. And I even had a clothing allowance for a while. Um, but, um, but now, now that, you know, I'm, I'm wearing my fancy sweater for the, and you look uh, very nice and your lipstick <laughs> matches and yeah, <laughs> for yeah. the podcast, but mostly it's jeans and a t-shirt. But yeah. I love fashion. So, but, yeah. But everyone, even if they, a lot of people disdain fashion, but it doesn't matter. That's that's a relationship with it right there. Even if you don't care about it, some people, a lot of young women spend most of their income on clothes and others wear the same thing every day, but it's still a relationship. Yeah, it's 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 sort of a means of self-expression and it's a huge industry. I think it's like it's two trillion two trillion, trillion is that dollars. even a thing? Two trillion, trillion dollars, dollars a year. Uh, last last year was the what the industry was worth. Does that include bags and shoes? <laughs> I think it's mostly bags. Oh well, <laughs> that seems totally reasonable. There's uh there's tre- there's fast fashion, there's trendy fashion, there's haute couture, there's there's vintage, which I quite like. Yeah, there's sportswear. There's lots of uniforms. There's safety wear. There's baby wear. The other day, I saw someone looking at a three hundred dollar outfit for a baby that they, you know, would fit for a day and a half. For a day and a half, that's crazy. There are fashion designers, obviously. There are models, manufacturers, retailers, writers, critics, fashion journalists. Yeah, and our guest this week is probably the best known fashion journalist in this country. Um, maybe even in the whole world. Yeah. Uh, Jeannie Becker, she practically invented fashion as entertainment. Fashion television. I can't remember the opening. Da, 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 with all the models. Stru- oh, my God. I loved it. And it, it was the, the show started on City in uh, City TV in 1985. It ran until 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Huge success. And it was Jeannie who's she would go in with her cameraman. And like literally force herself into these, you know, designer fashion shows and stick her mic in the faces of people like Karl Lagerfeld, whom she became friends with. But, you know, everybody, Nicole Kimmon, Catherine Deneuve, Alexander McQueen, and she would just get them to talk. Yeah, there were so many. Anna Wintour, I think somebody made a movie about her. Um uh, RuPaul, Robert De Niro. I didn't know he was a fashion guy, but she, he was at a designer show. And, and sometimes they'd snub her, but she would get them, like she's a journalist. She would get them to talk. It was great. 
Absolutely. So she's still at it. Uh, Jeannie is and writing and producing and she's got a podcast, but she has been sidetracked by um, our old nemesis, uh, Mm. breast cancer. And I believe she's just finishing her treatment. We're going to ask her about that. But she's, I've been following her on Instagram. She's kept in touch with all her followers. Oh, we see you. We see you, Jeannie. <laughs> Come on. I turned it on. I can't wait anymore. <laughs> I'm here. There she is. Jeannie's like, <laughs> Hi, Jeannie. Oh, so nice to see you. Yeah. Thank you for uh, all those great words. Um, uh, you know, listening to that, it's, it's kind of surreal, you know, because uh, you live your life and you're just, you know, you're just doing stuff. You're in the moment and you're just doing what you do. And then, one day you sit back and start looking back, you know, objectively at all that stuff that you did. And it's like, whoa, okay. Yeah, I've been around. Yeah, you started a lot of things. I mean, like you were a journal journalist and then you were a fashion journalist and then, and, and now you're still, you're still going. You're like, you're, yeah. you're not a spring chicken anymore and you're still <laughs> doing fashion <laughs> TV. Hold on a second. <laughs> Uh, no, I still feel like I'm, you know, I'm the old rock chick that, you know, uh, that I was when I was doing the new music back in the day, you know, like back in the seventies, uh, I definitely, uh, was very blessed, um, to be at the right time in the right place with the right personal attitude to blaze a lot of trails. Um, you know, I, I hooked up with a very progressive little cable TV station, city TV, who was run by this madman genius, uh, the very, uh, very idiosyncratic and eccentric, maybe, but uh, brilliant Moses Neimer. And uh, he was of the philosophy that you just you know, take the ball and run with it. You know, yeah, you want to do that? Knock yourself out. So uh, we got to make it up as we went along. And I, I got to do a lot of really cool stuff and, and really record fashion as entertainment in a way that it hadn't been uh, really recorded before. And that, um, that was really incredible because I think it really helped change the whole industry. Maybe not necessarily in such a good way because it ended up turning it into a media monster and uh, a big business um, giant that just sucked the the artistry out of uh, the industry to some degree. But we can probably get back to that in just a sec, but I think sort of Maureen and I are just, we've just been so touched by what's happened to you the last year or so. So are you okay now? Like you went through, the whole breast cancer thing. Have you rung the bell yet? I've rung a few bells. I mean, I rang the bell after, like, <laughs> you know, a dozen chemo sessions were over. And that was in, uh, like, in early September. And then at the end of October, um, I had surgery. And then I went for radiation. And then that was finished by January. And I got to ring a gong, a bang a gong. Uh, Princess Margaret has all these fun sound effects. And then uh, just recently, I've been on Herceptin, which is this miracle drug I'm her two positive, actually triple positive. Um, and because of that, there's this incredible targeted therapy drug called Herceptin that was invented about 22 years ago that has saved thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. So I was on that every three weeks for a year. And I just finished my last dose of that, like when it was last week or something. Yeah, I'm her, or I was, I am. <laughs> I was her two positive. And I was one of the first people to get her septum. A friend of mine was actually like drove to Buffalo. She had lots of money and she went in her fancy car and the Global Mail covered her. And, and they, it's a Canadian discovery, right? The her septum for the, the her two uh, positive people. So it's uh, pretty remarkable. 
There's an incredible film that I don't know if you've seen it called uh, uh, Living Proof, starring Harry Connick Jr., all about how Herceptin was discovered by this uh, California doctor who was funded by Revlon. So wow. Revlon Cosmetics, when Ron Perlman was uh, running Revlon, he gave $2 million to Lily Tartikoff, who was a very a good friend of this particular uh, scientist, who was just about to run out of funds because the drug company he was working uh, under you know, decided to pull out of the research and he was so close that uh incredibly uh revlon dished out two million dollars and he finished the uh the research and it got approved and blah 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 i mean it's just it's a great little movie you can get it on apple tv so uh, called living proof um and uh, bernadette peters is in it and uh, trudy styler is in it and some really cool people but um harry connick jr plays the doctor cool that's so cool it's not a club anybody wants to join, but here we are. And, and I mean, it's a different situation than it was in our, you know, our, the last generation. And, and yeah, it's a, uh, your journey as they call it is not one that has a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and you've been navigating it. You've, you've done a fair amount of traveling in the last little bit, haven't you? Well, yeah, I'm trying to make up for lost time, of course, but Maureen, I just have to get back on that. And because I feel very, very strongly about this. I don't, for me anyway, I mean, I can't, everyone's experience is so unique with this. And, and as you both know, nobody's case is the same. And for me, uh, yes, I had a serious kind of breast cancer and, um, you know, and, and thankfully so far so good, you know, but it's only been a year now. It wasn't a, a matter of the journey being, you know, a long, dark tunnel. And then there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I found an incredible amount of light all along the journey, more than I could ever have dreamed of. My journey was absolutely rife with brilliant silver linings. And I made up my mind at the beginning that I was going to leave fear on the table because, you know, when you first get diagnosed, it's the scariest thing. And how am I going to get through this? And how am I even going to get through this? I just decided I wanted to live in the light. I didn't want to live in a dark hole. I did, you know, and even if I only had six months left to live, I was going to, you know, live my best life and try to the, the positives and what I was going through. And I was confident because I've been through a lot of bad stuff in my life to know that um, these are lessons. And usually, you know, what doesn't kill you, make you makes you stronger. And you do usually come out of the darkness um, as a new kind of person with new realizations. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I, I thought, you know what, this journey is going to make me a bigger, better, stronger, braver, wiser person. And and I think it did. I really, it, it definitely did. Well, you're you're a better person than me and Maureen because uh, I, I I was a very uh, I don't know I was I was I was surprised by how big the club was and it and it made me made me angry and and I and I thought like screw cancer and yet you've embraced it and I think people want to be embraced and so so good on you. So no, you're not a better person than Wendy and me <laughs> because Wendy and I had. <laughs> Wendy and I had different experiences and different attitudes. I was more like you where I was blown away by, I called them strange gifts that came out of the whole process where there was so much a love and support in response from not just my family, but from listeners. Remember my friend, Marilyn Dennis saying to me, you know, that was a good career move. <laughs> And the short hair looks great. <laughs> yeah, we're bald. Uh, and so, no, like you, I came out of it with renewed. I went through it 
with a renewed sense of, and I, like you had a, you know, not to say mine's worse than anybody's, but I have, I still have no prognosis and it's been 15 years, but they couldn't tell me. So, I mean, to me, but when you came out of it angry and in true journalistic investigative style, she went on to say, well, listen, this is not, I shouldn't accept this. I shouldn't for a second think that this is, you know, one out of three women get it. Why is that okay? So we had different attitudes. I think both are valid, but we did have different attitudes. Yeah, I felt I felt loved, but I but I also felt a lot of uh, by the people who love me and by the people who watched me and were like, "Oh my God, I hope you don't die." Um, and I was like, "Yeah, I hope I don't either." <laughs> um, but I was I was also angry that we're not doing more about prevention. So I I I you know I put my little journalistic hat on, which is probably another form of denial, which I think is something that we all go through with with this stupid disease. But uh, but I but I was shocked by how many people had it and how little that we're doing to to stop it. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't like you, Dini. Yeah, that I that I wasn't aware of of how fleeting life is. And I, you know, I was 47 when it hit, so I was a little bit younger, but, but still, I think when it hits you, when it hits, hits you later in life, it's like, holy moly, <laughs> I've only got so much time left. I better embrace this, which is what you did. Yeah. I don't, you know, anger is something I try never to host or entertain or, you know, I just don't, no matter what, I mean, a lot of crappy things have happened to me and, you know, like my marriage breakup and the way my, you know, my husband ditched out and yeah, you know, that was like whoo, many, many occasions to that angry. But I guess I learned from my parents too, who were Holocaust survivors. Anger, you know, certainly, you know, was, was there maybe at the root of it, but they, they were all about letting people know that there still is cause to, you know, celebrate the human spirit. And there, there, it, 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 there's a, a more of a reason for us to share our stories and tell our stories and inform people and let people know. You know someone told me very early on in the diagnosis and right actually a few days or, oh, I went on, a, on an Alaskan cruise first. And then I told everyone that I had breast cancer, like just before I started my chemo, because we had this cruise booked and it was like, oh, can I still go on the cruise? And I was like, yes, go on the cruise. So I went on the cruise and came back, announced it. Um, within two days, my Instagram following doubled. So I thought, whoa, and then that was pretty good. And then somebody wrote to me who had also just been diagnosed, uh, a follower and said, I'm choosing to see this as an opportunity disguised as an inconvenience. And I thought that is a cool thing. And that's really how I saw it. Yes, it was terribly inconvenient to have breast cancer when you have a very busy life and all of a sudden things have to change and you have all these appointments, you've got to go through all this horrible physical stuff. But wow, what a platform it gave me to try and touch people, uh, share my story, have them share their stories with me. And let people know that uh, there's a lot we can do uh, to try and, you know, stave this beast off. And early detection is absolutely of paramount importance. And, and most breast cancers, when detected early, are not only treatable, they're curable. So, you know, there's a lot of hope in that. And we just have to tell everyone. And we've got, you know, the three of us here, you know, I think we've got pretty loud voices. You know, we've all been around for a long time. We just have to scream about it. That being said, Wendy and I, amongst all the weird coincidences in our lives, were diagnosed within a year of each other at, and treated at Princess Margaret, as you have been, 
but uh, you don't want to be, and you're fresh out of it. You're a year, and so it'll be interesting to see how you deal with that. The last thing I wanted was to be the poster child for breast cancer. About a year after I got out of it, and that, that's a scary time, I had a lot of people approaching me asking me to host events from local barbecues to big events with that idea that you're a survivor, you owe. And I have never felt, that's something I didn't like, was like, well, wait a second, now that I've been through, and I'm still recovering from treatment, that I'm supposed to now devote my energies. And I mean, I've never felt that way. I've, I've felt fortunate and lucky, but I've never felt obligated. And after a while, I started to feel a little resentful that uh, I was expected to do these things, to do PSAs like you're doing and to show up and, and host events and not be paid because somehow I had a debt to society. Wow. Okay. That's an, that's an interesting perspective. I, I, like you say, I don't know. I'm just so grateful for all the love and support that's come my way from, uh, from the community in so many different, uh, not only the breast cancer community, but, you know, just from, from everyone, from, you know, fans and followers and, and people uh, in my life that I could never possibly imagine feeling resentful being asked to do a PSA. Or, I mean, if I can't, a lot of times I can, I'm not going to kill myself. And I love, also, I love, I love posting things. I love emceeing things. I love, give, you know, give me a stage, you know, it's like, wow, I really enjoy it. It's not, if I'm, you know, not, it's not like, oh, good, I got to do this thing again. No, I do really like it. If I can, I'm not going to, I also know balance is absolutely key. You know, that's a absolutely the most important thing. You can't kill yourself and do too much work, especially at you know, this stage of my life. But no, if I'm available, if I can do it, you know, it's funny, I've just got a book deal with Simon Schuster, which is really nice because they, I wanted to write another book. I was due for one and my last one came out in like 2011. Um, so I really was due for one. And I wanted to write a kind of memoir. I didn't really know how to approach it. And I got approached by Simon and Schuster. And I, hey, do you, want, do you feel like writing a book? You know, let us know. It's like, wow, okay. And I, of course, immediately thought, and they probably want me to write a book about the cancer journey. And uh, Kevin Hansen, who's so brilliant, he's the, uh, the pres of Simon Schuster Canada, said, no, 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 we don't want you to write about the cancer journey. You know, he said, the book's going to come out in a couple of years and like, you still want to be, you know, talking about the cancer journey in that way. And so I said, yes, great. Because I got so many books from people who had written about their cancer journeys. And it was like, that's very nice and great for you. But, you know, I don't want to hear about, the minutia of your journey because it's it's so different than mine. And- yeah, that was that was kind of my thing. Like like Maureen and like you, the first year you're still only a year post. Uh, so we'll see how, whether you become like Maureen two or three years from now when you're still getting a thousand requests a week. <laughs> you know, angry and bitter. But I, yeah, no. <laughs> um, but uh, but I too, I for the first year I was like, I'm just so happy to be alive, and I'm so happy for the other for you know people to like. I remember my kitchen looked like a florist's it was just so full of flowers of you know expressions of love and 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 so on but but at some point i i didn't want to be the cancer girl i didn't want to have my life ruled by cancer and so at some point i just stopped well there was actually somebody who approached me who was a producer of some famous mu- music group i probably shouldn't identify who said hey wendy hey cancer girl do you want to do a song and i'm like have you ever heard me sing there's probably a reason why you've never heard me sing I was like, no, I'm not cancer girl, but we'll see. We'll we'll check back in in in, in ten years, okay? Let's see whether you're. <laughs> I will be very disappointed with myself if 
what you're sort of, you know, saying could, could happen happens. I mean, and it could happen. I don't deny it, but I would be very, I mean, you know, I don't know. I fought my whole life to, to be generous of spirit and um, to be grateful and do that. So I, I can't, I think it would be a real change in my nature, but that happened. I know stuff like that happens. Hey there. Uh, just so you know, Mo and I are not just the queens of podcasting. I'm not sure we're even that, but do go on. We're not part-time cowgirls. We just made that up. But we are writers. We're writers. Wendy and I write a newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly roundup of thoughts and experiences, sometimes serious, often not. Yeah, you're pretty funny. You you write about falling down a lot. Uh, you write about your dog. I do. You write about sex and politics and COVID. All very, very serious things. We have a few thousand subscribers, both free and paid. And you could be one of them if you'd like. Just go to substack.com and look us up by name or go to our website at womenofillrepute.com and sign up there. We'd love to meet you there. And now back to being the queens of podcasting. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the women of ill repute. Let me let me grab the steering wheel here uh, for a second. I want to. So, how is your relationship? Well, this is bringing it back to clothing and fashion. How, has has your last year affected how you feel about it? I mean, has it changed your perspective or is it's just as a lovely and as important and interesting as it ever was. Yeah, it's as lovely and as important as, and as interesting as it ever was. It was never the be all and end all to me. I always uh, saw fashion as stuff. You know, I mean, fashion and style are two different things. If you're talking, fashion is the schmutta business. You know, they say fashion is what you're offered. Style is what you choose. So I've always, you know, prided myself on my editorial capabilities just just by because I know myself I know my taste I know what I like I do have an open mind to stuff I'm willing to try stuff I've had an interesting relationship with style all through my life and actually that's what uh, the book and the new book is about of uh, different pieces of my wardrobe and the, the stories that uh, they ended up telling and were how, how they they I don't know helped me through different situations so I think uh that kind of the clothes and accessories are incredibly powerful tools, uh, not only for transformation, for making us feel differently about ourselves, perhaps, um, or seeing ourselves in new ways, but also as a as a means of communication. You know, I mean, that's the first thing people see when they see us is, like, oh, what's she wearing? You know, like, you know, what does it really say about her? What does it say about her mood or what is it, or his mood? or their mood, you know, so I think it's just an incredible tool um, in our lives. And it's the one chance that people, everybody has to be creative every single day of their lives. I mean, you know, some people don't choose to exercise it in that way or think of it that way, but everybody has to put, unless you're living in a nudist colony, put uh, something on and go out there and face the world. And, you know, you can be as creative about it as you want, but I, I just think it's, it's a remarkable uh, so do you, how many closets do you have? You must have like so much stuff. I lost count because I do live in a big house in Toronto with lots of closets and I happily took over when my husband left. And that's the one good thing about that. And I also uh, have, my partner and I have a wonderful house in the country 
where um, I sort of try to hog as many of the closets as I can. But he has a very impressive wardrobe too. So uh, he's got a few. And uh, yeah, I just, I get the problem is not that I go out and buy a lot of stuff, not that at all. Yes, people have sent me stuff, you know, gifted me with stuff over the years. I mean, that's the business I'm in. But I get very sentimentally attached to pieces of clothing. And I, I just sometimes can't let them go because they're so filled with wonderful memories and stories. So I have a collection. Out of the top of your head, could you tell us, say, your three favorite pieces? What are they? Where they come from? Oh, uh, I know it's tough. It's like picking your children. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. The backs, I mean, there's so many because this is exactly what I'm writing about now, but I'll just throw it off the top of my head. Uh, um, uh, this wonderful Wayne Clark gown that Toller Cranston gifted me with uh, very early on in my career when I befriended him and we became very, very close friends. He was, you know, my confidant and uh, style mentor. So it's around about uh, 1981. He invited me to go to the Genie Awards with him. That's what they used to call the Screen Awards. And uh, he bought me an amazing Wayne Clark gown that made me feel like some kind of fairy queen, you know, <laughs> petals of organza and little crystals uh, embellished. And it was just, anyway, it's a great dress. So I still have that dress. The, the, the velvet uh, Anna Sui, big, huge bell bottoms that I wore when I interviewed Madonna. Uh, and this was probably in the maybe 90s. And it, it was funny because I got these great bell bottoms and I had an interview with Madonna. I was so excited that I, I walked into the room and she was wearing the exact same pants. I was like, I love it when you see another woman wearing what you're wearing. For me, it's not like, oh my God, what she trying to upstage me. I, you know, I thought, yes, this is going to bond us. And she was not impressed at all. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> so she had a rough night though, because of a film that she had done, a body of evidence had just screened the night before to, you know, cat calls. And it was, so she wasn't in a good mood, but anyway. And uh, so that one, and uh, oh boy, they just, there's so many, um, you know, I mean, clothes or accessories? We're talking about clothes or accessories. Oh, you decide. Anything. Shoes, bags. This little baby, this is a ring. This the, It's a signet ring with the initials BR on it. That's my mom, Rania Rohatiner. And this ring was given to my mother in 1939 on the day the war broke out by her brother, who was working for a jeweler and had this ring made for her. Um, and it's the only thing besides the the humans that they were that survived the Holocaust. I mean, this was on her finger the entire time. She was on the run the entire time. So this, and she wore it, you know, on her pinky. And, you know, the day she died, I took it off. So this is my constant reminder that uh, I'm a survivor. It's in my DNA. And uh, yeah. Well, that explains so much about you, right? I mean, kid of parents who survived the Holocaust, and you, you, you're just like, you're going to make the best of the world as it is. In spite of the pain, you're just going to push ahead. Yeah, you look like you're about to cry. <laughs> yeah, I'm touched. That, yeah, I'm, I'm, and it's wonderful that you articulated it that way and that you can see it that way. And yeah, that's, I think, uh, yeah, my, um, our own personal truths uh, do touch us when we hear them, you know, expressed publicly. Yeah, yeah, that's very, that's right on, uh, Wendy. That's exactly uh, the way I see it, the way I saw the situation. That's exactly what got me through this past year. That and the 
with the thousands and thousands and thousands of well-wishers out there that, you know, I would sit in my chemo chair some days, you know, feeling pretty sorry for myself. And I wore one of those wretched, I say wretched, but probably helped me with my hair situation, uh, ice helmets, you know, uh, that they have now that supposedly help you keep your hair and maybe... So you kept your hair? Because Maureen and I were both like bald. I kept 40% of my hair, 40% of my hair. So I wore a very chic little cap for the year, which was kind of fun. But now it's growing back with a vengeance, which is great. But I would sit in that chemo chair with this god-awful thing on my head because that that was probably the worst part of it for me. It was very highly uncomfortable. And I would start feeling sorry for myself and I would just scroll through my Instagram comments and whoa. I thought complete strangers are praying for me. Like what? Well, who does that? How does that happen? So you just have to turn the fashion cap into a fashion, or the the cool cap into a fashion <laughs> statement. <laughs> yeah. yes. My sister coined it space age chic. You know, the first uh, first day I put it on, I thought, yeah, ground control to Major Tom. It looked, uh, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was kind of a little courage, if you know that look from the sixties. <laughs> anyway. I want to ask you, we want to ask you back to clothing and fashion. So in the last few years with the advent of fast fashion and, you know, retailers like H&M and Zara and so on, I mean, on the positive side, they've made fashion available and affordable to to people who otherwise wouldn't. But by the same token, I'm not going to name names, but there I know a number of young women, <laughs> if they're listening, know who they are who buy in bulk and literally wear something once and then it goes off to... How uncool. I know. It is uncool. You know young women who are still doing that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know there are... Well, there, these retailers <laughs> depend on them. That's that's what they depend on. Cheap, fast fashion that doesn't hold up. So what can we do about that? Well, we can just n- not do it. I mean, I you know, we can't shut these places down and uh, a lot of these places do employ, you know, uh, many, many people and... Uh, you know, that's something that we need, but we've got to come up with some solution and it's already starting. It's the biggest conversation in fashion is that of sustainability. Um, luckily, my two daughters will only wear vintage. I mean, they only wear vintage. That And how cool is that? And the thrift stores are just filled with fabulous finds. If you really want to get creative and you know, make your own style statement, wow, isn't that great? Yeah, I wish I'd kept more stuff because I look in vintage shops and it's all, I had that. (laughs) Yes, I know. I've I've actually seen stuff that I've given to VSP and gone, which is a big consignment store in Toronto. And I've pulled stuff out going, God, that's gorgeous. That's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think shopping was, now listen, I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me. I happily work for TSC, the shopping channel that Rogers owns, and it's, a great place and it's a great place to shop. And over the past few years, we've really adopted that sensibility to a large degree. I mean, it's, it's not always in play, unfortunately, just logistically, I suppose can't be, but more and more we're like, less is more spend a little bit more for better quality things that will last you longer that have a design sensibility to them. That is just not, you know, trendy, but that really has a, a classic kind of feel perhaps, or that you will not get tired of. So um, that's something that I'm trying to impart on, you know, the people that tune into to our show, Style Matters, uh, every week. It's, it's a problem. Like, it's, it's really a huge, terrible problem. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to, you know, put the genie back in the bottle because I so celebrated the democratization of fashion, you know, when 
and bad fashion television is partly responsible for it because we got the fashion word out there and everybody now, you know, wants to dress up and everybody can dress up because it doesn't have to cost a lot. Just, you know, bye, 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 bye. And I think we just have to pull back a little bit, you know, and yes, we, we want to buy and we want to especially buy local, especially to support our own industry here in Canada, clothes that are not only designed in Canada, I mean, that's important, but made in Canada, you have to, you know, labels now can be very tricky. They say, you know, designed in Canada, and then, you know, made in the People's Republic of China. So you have to, you know, like, look at what you're buying, you know, educate yourself as a consumer. And, um, and if you buy something, you don't love it and love it and, and, and wear it as much as you can until you don't feel like wearing it anymore. And then pass it on to someone else who's really going to appreciate it. Um, that's something that's really important. We're going to have to go in in, uh, in a few minutes, but I um, I just wanted to go back to the old days because I, I so remember you um, as a rock and roll star. And I, I want to know what was it like behind the scenes? So there must be some story. I don't know whether it's about J.D. Roberts or Sting or whoever it's about, but like who who is hot, who's not? What can you tell us? It was a long time ago, but what were, what were they? Oh. I mean, you're just asking, you know, and, and the story of my life for those, you know, decades that I was really uh, just consumed by that scene. I, you know, it's it's really hard. There, there are, you know, I've written about some of the stories of my adventure with, you know, Andy Summers, the guitarist of the Police in the bathtub. I interviewed him, you know, first uh, in the bathtub, like probably he, he was in the bathtub. I was just sitting on the edge of the tub. For a <laughs> sure, so, let's be clear. <laughs> 20 years later, he came out with a photography book and I was only doing fashion television by that point. So he said, um, you know, I asked for an interview because we covered a lot of photographers. I thought that'd be cool because I interviewed him 20 years ago on the side of a time when he was wild and crazy. Let's, you know, let's do something else with him. And, he, and uh, you know, his manager goes, oh, yeah, we remember that. OK, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And uh, and then it was like, you know, but this time, why don't you get into the tub with Andy? I went into the tub with Andy. I was like, you know, 50 something year old, you know, mother of two. Like, how got, my mother was mortified that I was even considering sex with Andy. into a bathtub with a rock star. Um, but I did, damn it, put on a little string bikini, sucked in my gut. You know, I was a very self consciously in a little uh, suite at the Windsor Arms Hotel. And, you know, my, my cameraman was there and I had another photographer there because I was editing a magazine at the time so I wanted some great stills and uh, got into the tub um, he was wearing little you know funky swim trunks too so and we put a ton of Mr. Bubble in there he ordered uh, some Cosmos from room service you know they arrived he lit up a big joint and he starts you know sitting back and you know <laughs> <laughs> waxing poetic about life and the meaning of it all and, and he had put little votives all along the side of the tub for some extra you know atmosphere that's hilarious and at one point he just sort of threw his head back in laughter and his hair caught on fire and I was oh, like, oh my god who saw me and I just Threw the microphone down. I get you know, I electrocuted us. It was it was a moment. It was great, and actually, you can see it on YouTube. Yeah, I think if you Google Andy Summers' hair on fire, yeah, so that was great. You know, I hope I never lose touch with that inner teen that told me to do that. You know, that's the thing. That's what's so. That's why I love having those stories as a frame of reference to constantly remind myself that yes, I must always leave myself open to these wild and crazy opportunities and just go with it because, uh, wow, life's a much richer experience for it. 
Well, you've started so many things, you know, back at back at City and then Fashion TV, and now you're still writing books. And you had cancer and you slayed it. Uh, we we hope everyone says so. You're fine now, right? It's all and I'm like, yeah, till I die of something else. You never know. As much as anybody is, right? As much that's it, Maureen. As much as anybody is, because you know, it's like we're going to live in fear about what might happen to us. Every single person you see out there, who knows what the hell's growing inside of them? Like nobody just, you know, you don't get an MRI, you know, every six months of your life forever. I mean, maybe some people do, but you just don't know. So you just got to, you know, do your best to, to be careful and, and adopt a healthy lifestyle and, uh, and, you know, do a lot of praying, have faith and, and just don't let fear stop you from, uh, from loving your life and living in the light. Well, and you fell in love in your sixties, right? So you're, you got, you got a new man, new life. You got, yeah, yeah we great. just celebrated our, what was this now? Oh, I've lost track already. That's a good sign. Um, nine, yeah, eight year. Wow. Eight year. Yes. Ian McKinnis and he's uh, absolutely wonderful. And that was like, my mother met him two weeks after my mom died. So I'm sure my mom, you know, sent him to me. She definitely, you know, gave him a nudge. I met him at the McMichael Gallery, Moonlight Gala. Very romantic. And it was absolutely love at first sight. Oh, and, wow. Uh, wow. <laughs> Let's all keep dancing. Yeah, thanks, Jeannie. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Jeannie, you you exude joy. Um, and that's a real gift to not only yourself, but to the rest of us. And thank you so much for talking to us, not only about your recent journey, but just giving us a glimpse of some of the things that you have experienced. And uh, good luck to you. God love you. It was really nice talking to you. Thanks. Back at you, gals. Thank you so much uh, just for being uh, the bright lights that you are. Gorgeous and still dancing as fast as you can. And uh, I love seeing that. I'm a little worried I came off as this really sort of bitter cancer survivor. No, I think but you're the you're the bitter. <laughs> you were the one that was the angry one. Yeah, no, I am. I am angry. And I think everybody it's totally justified to have whatever reaction that you have. And I, I was um, like, I feel guilty that I wasn't more, I was angry about being put in the position. I was angry about all kinds of things, mostly about how big the club was and why aren't we doing more to prevent everybody from, you know, it's almost 50% of people going to get cancer as Jeannie and everybody says, there's so much better treatment for it now that most people like survive it. They might get it, but they survive it. But I did feel guilty about not doing uh, enough of what Jeannie does, which is you guys are amazing. You like the people who treat you and the, like, I, I didn't ring the bell because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. And I was, the bell is when you finish treatment and she made a big deal uh, uh, on Instagram of I've done my treatment and everyone's so great. And yeah, I, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ring it. And uh, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't want people looking at me and I didn't want to be the cancer girl. And it was also so emotional and, and your resentment, like, and I had a resentment after a year of basically doing almost everything that was asked of me or was allowed by CBC at the time uh, as cancer girl of just saying, no, I, I got to move on. There are other things in life than <laughs> if you're still alive than cancer. And, and you had the same reaction. It was just, oh, yeah. it was just a little bit, different, but uh, you were probably more gracious at the time. So I, I, anyway, I just think everybody has a, everybody has a different reaction and they're all justified, I think. Yeah. I was grateful to the health, the caregivers. And um, I think my resentment maybe came from a little bit from guilt because I was saying no to, I was exhausted too. 
it took me years to to recover really from the treatment. It does take its toll on you. And Jeannie's just well, she's a ball of fire. I mean, I don't think she takes well. And she has an outfit for every event. <laughs> This is the bitter person. Closet upon closet upon closet of clothes. I love the stories. She must have a catalog system. But the way she talks about her clothes, it's so meaningful. If you were to ask me, I could tell you I have two or three items of clothing or jewelry that mean an awful lot. Like I have a, um, when my mother died, my mother was a real clothes pony. She had an Armani cape that she'd had from the 70s. My sisters and I were like, we, we wanted it not just because it's a beautiful cape, but because it, it was my mother. It embodied her. It still smelt of her when I gave it to my sister. But yeah, we all have stories about that. And Yeah, I just gave Kate a dress. My, uh, my mother was, I mean, when she died, there was the same packet of mascara in her drawer that when I lived with her. So that's how fashion aware she was. Not. Um, yeah. My grandmother, I, uh, I never knew my dad's side of the family, but my, on the other side, my grandmother, I think she was fashion forward at some point and they never had any money. But she had a dress, which I always thought was going to fit. And it fit as long as I didn't sit down. So <laughs> it was just it was a little tight in the waist. So I gave it to uh, my daughter, who's now 24. And she was like, Mom, it's so weird. Like, we're all big boobs, small waist, same height. We're all like, there's something about genetics. Like, she's a little bit yeah. uh, different. Yeah. But my mom was the same size. I'm the same size. Our daughter's the same size. It's, uh, it, it, it's weird. And it, and it is like, I, I treasure that dress because I imagine that that was her going out fancy yeah. dress. Yeah. yeah. Just the so one. It something. Yeah. Yeah. It meant something. All right. Well, big boob, small waist. Everybody hates that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're a little lower than, and I don't mean the waist. <laughs> Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.